St. Luke, who has recorded for us Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it is St. Luke among the evangelists who constantly reminds us that Jesus' mission was to proclaim good news to the poor. So I thought I might take the opportunity of this day, October the 18th, traditionally celebrated among the churches as St. Luke's Day, to think with you briefly about the subject of poverty, to which St. Luke wishes in preaching of Christ to draw our attention. <coughs> Twenty years ago, as the turn of the millennium approached, the Christian churches of the West came together with remarkable and Concord behind a proposal to mark the turn of the millennium by a large act of debt remission directed towards the poorest countries of the world. A proposal which, though it did not elicit all the response that might have been hoped for, did bring forth a debt cancellation package from the G7 governments, which made a difference, I think we can confidently say, to the world economy since. Debt traps are not the only form that chronic poverty can assume. Indeed, poverty is one of those constantly changing phenomena in which we have to be alert, always to be able to discern where around us true poverty lies. But debt is perhaps the most symbolic and typical indication of poverty. They are a strong contributor, debt traps are a strong contributory reason why whole societies can become mired in chronic poverty. The campaign, which was launched 20 years ago, was called itself Jubilee 2000, and thereby explicitly referred to a provision in the book of Leviticus for the so-called Jubilee year, a provision in which once every 50 years all alienated land was to revert to its original owners. That text puts forward the idea of a clean sweep of debts, a moment at which, after alienation, exchange, all kinds of transactions, everybody in society is put back into the original situation from which they came. And that idea has a very strong imaginative power especially when we think of the needs of small-holding farmers whose stability depends on being able to transmit a parcel of land unencumbered to the next generation. And if they can't do that, we know they have not much future in farming. But such a measure has somewhat less comfort to 
so we find other approaches in the Pentateuch to the problem of debt. There are, in fact, in the law books of the Bible, four different legal provisions addressing four different kinds of social situation. And they have this common thread connecting them, that debt must not be allowed to accumulate to the point where it destroys individuals and communities. Perhaps the earliest, certainly the simplest, comes from Exodus chapter 22, which forbids the charging of interest in monetary terms outright. It allows the lender compensation through the pledge system, rather like pawn shops that used to be a feature of the financial landscape a century or more ago, rather more than they are today. Though in Edinburgh, where my wife and I live, um, uh, along with many other slightly archaic antiquarian features of the city, we still have uh, a lively pawn shop. And I suspect in some places they are coming back. Now, this does not mean that the lender gets no compensation for the loan. The pledge can be a tool, it can be an animal, which gives real service until the loan is repaid and the pledge is restored. So it is a way of passing round resources. You need some financial resources at the moment, I need some of the resources that your uh, property has, so we will share them. And that suits a community of small farmers, subsistence farmers scraping by with little money in liquid form and not many possessions, so that any possession that one has can be very usefully shared among neighbours. So far, so good. But then what happens when poverty becomes really acute? What, for example, of the migrant day labourer who has nothing to pledge except for the cloak which he hangs up when he goes to work during the day and needs to pull down from the peg again in order to have something to sleep in at night. Well, the law notices his situation too. In that case, the law declares the pledge can be held by the lender only during daylight hours. The arrangement is suspended at sundown and the borrower must, at all events, have the coat he needs to sleep in. So much for the first law. The second law also reflects a peasant economy. But it works quite differently. And it is found in Deuteronomy 15, and I shall read that again to you, but it will sound much different from what you learned just now for reasons that are about to appear. It said this, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a commission of debts. This is how it is to be made. Everyone who holds a pledge shall return the pledge to the debtor. One may not press a fellow Israelite for repayment, since the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Here we have a system of the debt cancellation year. All debts, simultaneously and indiscriminately, are reserved once 
Because of the pledge system, the lender had had a period of time, up to as long as seven years, to use some valuable object which he did not earn. He is therefore, in some measure, compensated. Sometimes <coughs> well compensated, sometimes not well compensated for his loan. But the real point is not the compensation. It is simply that nothing is gained and everything is lost by allowing a state of indebtedness to continue indefinitely, with no term. There has to come a point in any system of loan repayment when the balance sheet is brought into line with realities and practicalities. That is the only way that the human community can carry on. It does, of course, strike us as very odd, this thought that all such releases should occur simultaneously. That derives from the practice of keeping a seven-year fallow year on the land, also simultaneously, also understood as a provision for the poor, since the self-sown unreaped crop that comes up on fallow land is available to them. Economically, it is an obviously clumsy device, but it could serve its turn in a pre-literate society that had to function largely without documentary records of loans, but it tended to produce the kind of cyclical pattern that the law in Deuteronomy then observes, namely, that getting help with your financial needs simply becomes much harder towards the end of the seven-year term. Loans dry up. The Jubilee Law used the same device but over a much longer period because it had to do with land ownership. It takes time to develop a piece of land to its maximum yield, so you don't want to have to return it every seven years. Despite the use that was made of the Jubilee Law in the campaign around the millennium, uh, the Jubilee Law did not direct, directly address the problem of debt. It rather was concerned with the impoverishing effects of land sale, necessitated by bad harvests on small property holders. The land was God's gift to Israel, and when family land holdings were lost, the nation lost its sense of being God's tenants in his land. So the concentration of land in too few hands had to be dealt with. In effect, by putting the sale of agricultural land onto a leasehold basis, with a simultaneous expiry of all leases twice a century. <coughs> so there were three examples of how you tried to deal with the problem of accumulating debt, largely in relation to land. The fourth piece of legislation is the only one of the four to address an urban context. It imagines a fully monetarized economy, and it is set against the background of international trade. It is usually thought to have been the work of King Josiah's legal reformers in Jerusalem, that great restoration of the Mosaic tradition 
in the last quarter of the 7th century before Christ. We heard the Home Law read to us this morning. It's a model piece of legislation in many ways. One of the ways in which it is so good is that it bases itself on the earlier existing law, the one imposing centennial release, which then adapts to accommodate existing circumstances in the city. Another virtue is that while it's loosely enough phrased to allow for a certain width of interpretation, it incorporates an important statement of policy which will guide interpretation. So after the words in the old law, one must not press a fellow Israelite for a payment, it goes on startlingly to us, perhaps a bit shockingly, as follows. You may press foreigners, but if a fellow Israelite holds something of yours, you must renounce your claim on it. Then there was a crucial distinction made. There are foreign merchants who come to Jerusalem for the purposes, purpose of buying and selling, and those merchants are in need of financial services. There is no harm in providing them, sticking to the rules of the contract that govern them. It is not they who need protection. It is the impoverished local small businessman or farmer. So this law is addressed quite particularly to those who offer financial services, lenders, bankers of some elementary simple description. Nothing is said here about not charging interest. The pledge system is now disappearing in the face of a money economy. So domestic borrowers will pay interest just as foreign uh, merchants pay interest. But domestic borrowers may claim the protection of a seven-year bankruptcy provision if they fall into chronic debt. Then the legislators spell out their goals like this. There will never be any poor among you if only you obey the Lord your God by carefully keeping these commandments, for the Lord your God will bless with great prosperity. Then you will lend to people of many nations and borrow from none. You will rule many nations and none will rule you. The aim, in other words, is to abolish a certain kind of poverty, to break the pattern of chronic indebtedness that swallowed up whole sections of the community, and to ensure a national prosperity that can engage in international commerce. To achieve that, the bankers have to adopt a balanced strategy. They have to plan to offset some losses on domestic loans against the expansion of their mercantile business. And if they plan well, they will be able to avoid the opposite danger, which is the drying up of loans to domestic clients towards the end of the cycle. Lenders have to be open-handed, they are told. That is to say, perhaps in our own terms, investors have to be adventurous, not timid, ready to write in a provision for their risks and to ready to take some. For there will always be emergencies to meet, and emergencies have to be met on humane terms. The poor will always be with you in 
before, the big legislators have boasted that there can be no more among you. And that contradiction on the surface of it has, of course, excited all kinds of comment. But it's not at all difficult to see what they meant. They're inviting us to distinguish two kinds of poverty. Occasional poverty, which simply goes with general risks of life and has to be addressed by present help, available, ready. And chronic poverty, which has to be viewed as a deep social evil to be eradicated. And the sensible and humane way of dealing with one is at the same time the best strategy for preventing the other. Poverty always counts among the difficulties of life. No one is glad to have too little in the bank. Yet some kinds of poverty are compatible with getting on with life. To be poor is to be situated so that meeting the daily needs of life requires somewhat more thought, somewhat more energy than it would if one had more resources to spend. We may well find that situation distressing, but the tasks we have to fulfill are not themselves dehumanizing or demeaning. They're not unworthy of intellectual skills, gifts of imagination. They're not simply impossible. So, poverty can give a constructive shape to the way we live our lives and serve God, providing that there is help to hand when we need it, and there is something that we can do and do well. Poverty can be a hard school, but it can teach us ways and means. A narrow door, but a door that leads straight in to a role in society. But there is another poverty, quite different from that. And that is the poverty of inactivity. Where Lazarus lay at the gate of the rich man's mansion, there was nothing for him to do. There was no humble door that let him into some form of social participation. When ways and means are not simply to be found, when all the efforts which our needs elicit from us are unavailing and we are as badly off or as worse off than we were when we began, when the modest margin of success for those who tackled their work well all but disappears, then we are in danger. And typically such situations engulf whole classes and whole societies and not just individuals. Twenty years ago, as the millennium here approached, what was apparent was that developing nations urged to undertake cheap borrowing in a period of boom had suddenly found themselves caught in staggering spirals of interest rises in the subsequent procession. They no longer made any difference whether they were well-governed or corrupt, whether they had wise policies or foolish policies. They were simply out of their depth, and there was nothing left for them to do. Naturally, we hesitate before releasing anyone from the terms of an agreement freely undertaken. Holding people to their word is one of the ways in which we take them seriously as fellow members of society. Yet holding people to their word makes sense only when 
real participation in society is a possibility for them. And that is why all civilized societies have followed Josiah's reformers in insisting that there must be some provision for writing off unrecoverable debt. Mutual sharing of God's gifts is what constitutes society, and it is that which all our complex financial arrangements are meant to make possible. Behind the debts that may be pursued, there always lies the greater debt that we owe to God, the debt of fellowship with those whom God has given to share the earth with us, and the rights established by our contracts serve that underlying duty of fellowship, not vice versa. So let us go back at the end to St. Luke and the rich man and Lazarus. The virtues and personality of Lazarus, whatever they may have been, are wholly concealed from us, as they were from the rich man. Lazarus is the passive figure whose life is defined by the inactivity of poverty, plagued by sores of hunger, licked by dogs, transported by angels, consoled by Abraham. The rich man, on the other hand, is enacted for a rather different reason. His scope of action was no doubt not indefinite. He perhaps would not have been able to put Lazarus on his feet and back to work if he tried, but he could have noticed something. He could have noticed the great gulf that had arisen between himself and this fellow human being. He could have seen the human face beneath the disgusting condition. He could have acknowledged that Lazarus was a fellow human in need. Within the covenant of Israel, Israel with God, the rich man was asked to love his neighbor as himself, to recognize in this other being someone like himself equally addressed by God, and not to shut him out from his field of vision. And the temptation that we face is the same temptation that the rich man faced, which is simply not to notice the problem of poverty when it takes an acute and disabling form, distressing to look at. If chronic poverty is condemnation to permanent inactivity, being able to accomplish nothing, having nothing at all that one can do. Perhaps the reason we don't notice it, when we should notice it, is simply that we have plenty that we can accomplish. When we meet Lazarus in the street, we are always hurrying somewhere. There's always something we have to do and do urgently. urgently. But when we fail to see that human face, which of us is in danger of falling out of the human race? Which of us is in danger of landing on the wrong side of that great hell? 